0: This is The Fall Line. We are working on another unsolved case here in Georgia, the disappearance of Derek Evans Jr. in Valdosta back in 2020. But because his family, who brought us his case, is working on a new search effort that extends through September, we're pushing back our coverage of his case until our mid-season bonus release in October. So today, we're sharing another kind of bonus with you. A behind-the-scenes look at The Fall Line, which, to our recollection, we have never done in the six years that we've been making the show. So, we've brought you a mix of frequently asked questions that we received by mail, some submitted by DMs, or on social media, and stuff that generally comes up every so often from listeners, and we're going to answer them for you today. And we threw in a few that we just wanted to ask each other. By each other, I mean Brooke Mora and me. It may seem like a big team, based on all the names you hear at the episode outros, but the bulk of the show is made by a very small team. There's me, the host, writer, and principal researcher. I also do most of our law enforcement and expert interviews. Brooke is in charge of all of our family interviews. Mora is our producer and engineer. And then there are other folks essential to our team who each do a few hours of work a month to assist in content advisement, who help me organize and file FOIA, who do media contact and help with background research. And trust me, they are amazing. Content Advisors, Vic, Brandy and Liv, they read over various scripts because they have life experiences that I don't. Brian helps with background research. Kiana helps organize FOIA and Michaela communicates with media outlets. But none of us work on the fall line full-time. We all have a couple of jobs, so it's about the indiest operation you can imagine. Even when the show was on a network, we did everything ourselves. Purchased all our equipment, paid for everything from FOIA to production. We never had a budget or production assistance outside what we came up with on our own. We just want to say that we appreciate... Everyone sticking with us, as this show has grown and changed through the years. So, we hope you enjoy this look behind the scenes. It's hard for us to believe that we've been at it this long. We're going to start by talking to Mora, who joined us in Season 5, so about four years ago now. We met her through a college friend who works in public radio. Brooke and I have known each other half our lives since we met in college, and we both moved back to Atlanta after attending school in North Carolina. That's where a lot of my family lives, as an aside. Our college friend Bradley was working in public radio when we were in the market for production help, and he connected us with Mora, who was working at the station at the time. It was the perfect match for us, and she massively improved our sound quality. She has also gone back and remastered our earlier work, and she and I even started a second podcast together, One Strange Thing, back in 2020. So, Mara is the perfect person to talk about how the show is put together. We have a lot of different kinds of clips to deal with. In-studio, or in our case, in-closet recording, Zooms, phone calls, field recordings, archival tape press conferences, and even FOIA audio recordings that need heavy restoration. So I asked her some of your questions, and my questions, about the sound of the show. Okay, so Mara, what makes The Fall Line like a more complex show to put together from an engineering standpoint than a chat podcast or
1: something like our other show, One Strange Thing? So it really comes down to the number of moving parts. And without going too intensively into the actual mechanics of mixing a show, because that's very difficult to explain auditorially, a chat show has two moving parts at its core. There's one person talking and then there's another person talking. On One Strange Thing, it's even simpler because we just have you talking for the most part. Occasionally we'll have guest actors or other elements, but it truly is just that one cornerstone voice. On the fall line, we have many, many, many more moving parts because there's your narration, there's interview clips, which themselves contain both the guests that we have on and Brooke or you, whoever has done the interviews. So nested within all of these elements are a bunch of different variables. They could sound like phone tape. They could sound like studio tape. They could be you recording in your closet. And then on top of that, it's a really sensitive topic often with the fall line. And so part of the responsibility that I feel in making this show is making sure that the music is chosen sensitively, that every single pause is treated like the editorial decision that it is. And each of those decisions have an outcome on the emotional tone of the story, whether listeners register each of those decisions or not.
0: And of course, because there's a lot of people, everyone has different access to technology. So you're going to get a lot of different tape quality. It might be Zoom, it might be the phone, what have you. So how do you handle that variation in tape quality that you get from us and then blend that into one single cohesive show?
1: I think the thing that I have realized is that you have to at one point give it up and realize that it's not going to be a cohesive sound. People are going to be talking on the phone, and they're going to be walking around through their house. Back when we were doing more in-person recordings, we would be in a kitchen, right? And so you would have people coming and going (laughs) and talking sort of in proximity to the microphone. And so... All of these different circumstances are secondary to the story we're telling. And so a lot of times, all I'm doing is just making someone sound like their best selves, whether that's you, whether that's Brooke, whether that's a guest we have on the line. The crux of my job is not to make people sound like they are broadcasting professionals in a studio. In a past life, when I was doing public radio, that was the goal, getting everybody to sound as NPR as they possibly can. Here, we have the luxury of being more candid. And so what that means for me is I am just cleaning up as much as I possibly can. I'm making folks sound as clear as they can. I am taking out things like filler words, or we invite guests to rephrase something sometimes if they've stumbled. So I'm making them sound like their best and most eloquent selves, but I'm not making them sound fundamentally different than they are or their circumstances are.
0: What has been the most difficult task that you've been faced with since you started
1: on the show four years ago?
0: And how did you tackle it?
1: So the one that jumps out right away is some tape that we got as part of our Samuel Little series back in, when was that, 2020? There were a lot of moving parts with that project, obviously. It was super, super research intensive. We could probably make a whole podcast about the making of that series because it was intense. But one of the sort of cornerstones was this audio that had not really been heard by the public yet that we got access to. Through a Freedom of Information Act request, and it was literal tapes <laughs> that the department in question had to digitize and send to us, they were in bad shape. These were interrogation tapes, and I think they had probably been like left in a basement for decades. And so with the Samuel Little tape, it was the physical degradation on top of the fact that the tapes were made, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and they don't. Sound good to begin with. And so, what had to happen on that tape to make it even a little bit audible was a lot of restoration work. So, I use Isotope, which is a suite of audio software that are used basically for two things super intensive restoration processes like this, and for studio music production, obviously, which I have nothing to do with. But for the restoration stuff, a lot of what that is doing is stripping away the funk and also regenerating the bits and pieces of the audio that we're missing. There's this practice in public radio where engineers will take whatever they've just mixed and then listen to it on their phone speaker and then in the car on those speakers and then on the laptop speakers and then on their studio headphones. And so you're testing all of these different stereos to see if your stuff is still audible on all of them. And so one of the things that Ended up being problematic with the Samuel Little tape was it sounded fine on my studio headphones. The studio headphones are super, super high def designed to make everything sound crystal clear. And so on the studio headphones, that tape sounded good. And then I would take it to my laptop speakers and it would be inaudible still. So there was a lot of trial and error there as well.
0: What is something that you think people might be surprised to know about how the fall line is made?
1: We have been remote since I started on the show in 2019. You and Brooke obviously live pretty close to each other, and you are able to work with each other in real life, but you and I didn't meet in person until three or four years after (laughs) I started on the show. So we have been remote pre-pandemic, pre-all of this sort of reshaping of workflows. We have always had a really, really strong ability to coordinate across time zones, across different platforms. When I started on the show, you were recording in your closet without anyone in your ear. You were just recording by yourself in a vacuum. And so we retooled that as I came on the show and got a little bit more integrated. And now we are able to talk like we're talking now, where I am in your ears, you are in my ears, and we have real-time dialogue. And so stuff like that, I think a lot of people had to figure out how to do when the pandemic started. But we had a, a lead start on that because we had a mastery of that already.
0: The most important question, I think, to you as a gearhead comes from another gearhead, Michael Wheelan, probably our oldest friend in podcasting from The Unresolved. We met him like oh, two months into podcasting. He wants you to talk about what kind of equipment we're working with.
1: I'm going to try to make this as digestible as possible for the non-gearheads who are listening. I know that the gearheads are few and far between. Michael, this is for you. So let's talk about Laura's setup, because I think when people think about the show, what they're thinking about is how you sound. But your setup is really interesting, and we have worked really hard at it. So you are speaking into a Shure SM7B dynamic microphone, which is a pretty standard broadcast microphone. You have a foam windscreen. And then in addition to that, there's something called a pop filter, which is like a disc of fabric. That sort of swivels out to be a barrier between you and the microphone. And what that does is prevent things like plosives, right? So I'm going to get close to the microphone on purpose to demonstrate people in places of power, right? That sort of puffing sound of air that happens on strong consonants. It's nice to get those prevented before they happen because fixing them is kind of a pain. We have your microphone routed into something called a cloud lifter, which is like a processing box, basically and then from there we have it going into a focusrite scarlet 18i8 and again gearheads will know what that means but a scarlet is basically a box that we plug the microphone into that routes that audio into your computer so the xlr microphone goes into the scarlet the scarlet goes into your computer The way we're talking right now back and forth is through a program called Riverside, which is a browser based recording software. We have tried a couple of different variations. I know lots of folks who use Zoom and have no issues at all. But the thing about Riverside that I have found really, really nice is that it's not recording the audio that is being received like Zoom, right? So everybody sounds kind of crappy on Zoom. But Riverside is recording you in situ. So before your audio even gets fed out, to my ears, Riverside is recording it on your end. So it sounds as good as it possibly can. The quirk there is that I can't hear it as well as it's being recorded. And so sometimes there was recently an episode where you were in the middle of a thunderstorm and I couldn't hear that when we were talking on Riverside. <laughs> <laughs> and then I opened the file later and was like, oh, okay. But Riverside means that we get the best possible audio file. We have tried a bunch of different sites and Riverside is the one we like the best so far. So that is what we use. It's a paid service, but there's also a free version. So we are really enjoying Riverside. Simultaneously, the way that we are able to hear each other is through headphones. And your headphones were a recommendation from me. These are the headphones that I have used since the very first job I had in public radio. They're Sony Dynamic Stereo headphones. I think it's the 7516 model.
0: Did that sound like a lot? She didn't even tell you about how we built our field recording kit or how we're set up for video and Zoom interviews. But trust me, it is a lot of gear. Next up, I'm going to answer a variety of grab bag questions about the show. Everything from how we select cases to research and much more. Maura's going to interview me for this one.
1: So, Laura, how are cases chosen for the fall line? What do we mean when we say a lack of media coverage when we talk about the criteria that we're looking for in a case we cover?
0: So this is simple and it's complex. But generally, we try and reserve space on our show for cases that are unlikely to receive significant media coverage. And we know that they won't because there's already a track record of that in the case. So either we're going to be looking at an unidentified person's case, a doe case, that has gotten like a paragraph or two in 10 years, or maybe nothing at all. Now, there have been a few exceptions over the years where a case has had some significant local coverage, meaning like 10, 12 articles over a decade, which, to be fair, is not a lot for a high-profile case if you look in the news. But for the kind of case we cover, that can seem like a lot. But when we're approached by a family dealing with a cold case— it's inevitable that they are the ones that made that happen. They've been holding yearly vigils. They've contacted the media constantly. They're doing birthday celebrations for their missing and murdered loved one. They've showed up at like every rally for the missing and murdered. And I'm actually thinking specifically of Travis Smith, who we just covered, because his sister made advocacy her second full-time job. So Travis was kept in the local South Carolina media, and in the augusta georgia media but often in the context of like maybe a larger story on gun violence when she came to us she was really looking for full in-depth coverage of just travis something that could be a review of his case that could reach a national audience because she'd never managed that even though she'd been at it for so long and the fact is let's be honest someone who might know something very well could have moved outside of that region. Most of the time, though, I think it's going to be a situation a lot more like Susie Quinn's, where we're going to have maybe a pamphlet from her funeral and two paragraphs from the Macon Telegraph or a similar paper to look at, or a case like Carlos Ariel Delgada Mancha. We covered him back in 2022. We had an old immigration record. And like two 1990s era arrest records to work with. His family wasn't even sure where he disappeared. So that's going to be a lot more likely in terms of what we have to work with
1: in terms of lack of coverage. We've talked a little bit about the criteria that make someone less likely to get significant media coverage on the show before. But say someone meets those criteria and, in spite of the odds, has a super well known case, why would we not cover a case that has seen significant national attention? What is the reason for devoting our attention to those cases that are lower profile?
0: So the first thing I want to do is be like super clear that every unsolved case is important, right? And every case deserves coverage. And I mean the cases that already have a lot of coverage too, They don't need to stop having coverage just because they've had a lot of coverage. What we need to do is lean into our strengths, and we all have different strengths. In our case, we look specifically at the cases that are least likely to get coverage because of our specific skill sets. We're good at archival research. We're good at primary research. We're lucky enough to have a licensed professional counselor on the team who can do really in-depth interviews. And a lot of the time when Brooke is doing those interviews, that's where some of our primary information is coming from. So we can contribute something by featuring cases that other people are less likely to cover. And let me be clear, that's not a critique of other shows because we need a lot of different kinds of coverage in true crime to allow for as many cases as possible to get in front of the public. The best contribution we can offer is to take the cases that other people are less likely to. Because after we're done, families, they're going to have a piece of media that they can reference or link
1: when they talk about their loved one. So how, and I know this is a a complicated question, but in broad strokes, how do we get access to law enforcement records? How do we get law enforcement to participate in the show if they didn't come to us? How do we build that trust? One thing we
0: do often is we file what's called a FOIA which is a Freedom of Information Act request. Every state has different laws for that. We're also often invited onto a case, and then we're given access to files after proper redaction. That's still going to be paperwork, but the access there will be a little more complete. What's going to be in a FOIA? (laughs) We never know. A standard FOIA might have a single page of an incident report that says, basically, this person is missing. Or we might get hundreds of pages. In terms of having law enforcement participate, that's always going to be kind of a crapshoot, too. But I think we've been able to gain trust through a couple of things. One is time. Just time. Two is a recognition of our in-depth reporting. And the fact that we're fair, if good work is done, we'll say good work is done. If there's an issue, we'll say there's an issue. But the reporting is accurate to the best of our ability. And at this point, because we've been working with so many agencies, there's a lot of press that covers that. They can listen to dozens of other law enforcement agencies interviewing with us, and they can see, you know, what that participation has meant. But sometimes we get turned down flat. We just had a string of that. No FOIA results, no interviews, but we can still cover a case. As for experts, experts are like a whole different ballgame. I have a lot of connections that I've made over the last six years or so with scientists. Those colleagues are kind enough to connect me with other
1: experts who can advise on particular topics. So I want to return to this concept of getting a case file, because I think people are often really excited about that and excited by what that means. But let's talk a little bit about what a cold case actually entails, right? Because sometimes a cold case means that there has been a lot of legwork, and sometimes a cold case means that there is very, very little to go off.
0: It really comes down to when all
1: leads have been exhausted. that That's the real
0: definition.
1: Some of these cases that we're looking at for a forthcoming season It's noted pretty immediately that there's nothing else to go on. Yeah. So if it's, you know,
0: dating back to the 70s or 80s, and then someone else will come back and pick it up later, you know, and do some more work on it. But some cases, honestly, you know, have not been investigated much at all. And so they went cold, practically speaking, almost immediately because of that. In other cases, they were investigated honestly and thoroughly, but there was still almost no information. Because ultimately, no matter how hard someone's working, they are going to eventually hit that dead end. And the case file is going to sit until there's a lead or a new detective takes it on and starts from the very beginning. And that's what Detective Matthew Filter does, who's on our show quite a bit. And his investigation, you know, is very active. But the leads he's looking at those are going to be 35, 40 years old. So in a situation like that, yes, he's working a cold case, but he's hoping to revive it and find new active leads.
1: So we've talked about case files and what those look like. When we're assembling an episode, we have that material to work with. What else are we doing to flesh out the content of an episode? So say, We're working a case where, like Sebastian Pascual, where there is very minimal, if any, media coverage and a pretty small case file. What do we do from there?
0: Well, we always start with the same process. Brian or I, or sometimes both of us, we tag team. We'll see what we can dig up. And that's going to be in a few different places. That's going to be like archival news sites, census, ancestry records, death records, Social Security. You know, there's all kinds of records. Immigration records. Immigration records. Yep. Everywhere. We check court records, arrest records and the like. I check to see if there are newspapers that are not on newspapers.com that have their own subscriptions that I'm going to need to apply for for the day and make sure to cancel so they don't overcharge me. And I also check to see if there are out-of-print newspapers from the area that could have covered the case. And I use the Library of Congress to do that. And then I plan on trying to get a copy of those articles if they exist, so I can order microfiche or microfilm. A lot of times, though, I will just talk to a reference librarian about getting a copy. We're going to be looking at similar crimes, demographics, Who lives there? What is the major production of the town? What do people live on? What did they do? Even if a case did not get coverage, the disappearance or the murder, it occurred in context, right? Place, time, family. There's still information that is waiting for us.
1: So how many... Cases that we cover are brought to us by families, people using the submission form in our show notes that we talk about at the end of every episode, versus cases that we find over the course of our own research.
0: So that really depends. A lot of them are brought to us by community advocates, especially Carolyn DeFord. She's who connects us to pretty much all our MMIP cases and those families who are seeking coverage. Some families find us through our friends, like Renetta at WJBF or through other families who've been on the show through simple searches online or they're recommended in online groups to come find us. That happens a lot on Facebook. So I think we reach out a lot less than we used to. I think most families find us now.
1: And so start to finish, how long does it take for an episode to go from an idea to a finished product and again this is sort of a complicated question and you and I are probably both smiling because it can really truly depend (laughs) so it's different for every episode or series the minimum
0: I think you'll agree with me is probably a few months Mm -hmm. the longest we ever worked on something was actually just prior to you which is the Grady babies and that took a year and a half to two years
1: Samuel Little was close close to that amount yeah close to that amount
0: The longest we ever spent on a short run was Victor Greenwood. That was about
1: a year. And that was due to there just being so much confusion in his case. And so on that note, let's talk about what happens when, for whatever reason, we have to shelve an episode or series. So we
0: literally just did this because we were working on an MMIW case for a standalone season that suddenly had a major revelation occur. And it was one that really shook up family members. So we decided to halt production until a time when or if they felt like they would want to move forward ultimately with that. And we, I mean, had one of the biggest FOIAs we'd ever gotten at that time. But ultimately, the show was not about having a giant FOIA. It's not about having a a complex topic. It's designed to serve the case, so it needs to stay that way. Or sometimes we just need to delay something just a little. For instance, in Derek Evans Jr.'s case in Valdosta, his family needed to go on two searches. And it was important to his mom that we cover his case, but she really wanted us to hold off until they finished the second search. He was supposed to be in this series thematically. It made sense. But it was more important than maintaining theme for us to put that off. So we switched what would be our bonus episode, which is this one. And what will go in that bonus slot in October is his story because that
1: better serves his family. So say we have a case that we've already covered, and then there is a a revelatory break in the case, an arrest, a new piece of information, some sort of development that happens after we have covered a case. When do we do updates? When are we going to get more updates on the cases we've covered?
0: If there is like a major update, we try really hard to put it at the top of an episode that's coming out, announce it on social media. But we try to gather updates about once a year into a single episode. In the past year or so, there have been some serious updates, which has been really wonderful. So I think right now we're looking at an updates episode that will probably be out in January of
1: 2024. And so we've talked a little bit about episodes coming out in October or in January of next year. We have changed the structure of the show relatively recently and returned to a format that we used to use but had abandoned for a little bit. So why did we change back to a seasonal format?
0: Because I like them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because I would say that we are an extremely in-depth show And we're often working with very little to tell you a lot, which takes a lot of
1: time. And we like to have that time. So you, at the time of this recording, have a book coming out in about a month, Lay Them to Rest from Hachette Books. And I think you probably get peppered with this question all the time. So let's address it here. Is the book about the podcast? Is this a Fall Line spinoff?
0: No, it is not.
1: (laughs) It is not
0: at all about the podcast. The podcast does get mentioned in the prologue, but that's knocked out in about mm, two pages. I spend a lot of my time working on unidentified person cases, doe cases. This is something that became a passion of mine through my work on the podcast, through the friendships I formed with so many scientists and experts, because I had to learn a lot about forensic science to understand the work we were doing on the podcast. And I actually had the opportunity to embed on a cold case from 1993 to try and identify a Jane Doe homicide victim. So my book is about that journey. And it's also about how forensic science has developed to solve these cases. When I say forensic science, people think DNA. But there are so many other branches. Odontology, forensic art, anthropology, it goes on. My real goal was to make forensic science accessible To the layperson, i.e., me, (laughs) because my academic career certainly was not spent in hard science. And the book to me is also about what comes after a solve, because I think people maybe assume that there's a solve and then you close the book, right? But the mystery isn't over. One thing I learned from this show is to always think about the people who are around a crime. And there are people who are left. After a case is solved or partially solved, and they're the people who are left to deal with all of the pieces and their family members are still left hurt, confused, relieved, so many things. So to me, it's about that as well. For our final Q&A section, I'm going to talk to Brooke about what is, in my opinion, the most important part of the show, the family and friend interviews. Brooke's role is to work directly with families and to make sure they're comfortable with the process from beginning to end. She's been a licensed professional counselor here in the state of Georgia for more than a decade, so that has always guided her approach. She does not love being on mic, but she was willing to do it for Q&A, which we appreciate. She's happiest when the families are the ones in the spotlight. You are a much bigger part of the show than I think people realize, mostly because you want it that way. You want to highlight what the interviewees are saying and not your own words. So now you have a chance to talk can you talk to me a little bit about your rules for how we approach the interview experience for families and friends of victims? What's important to you that we explain at the very top before we even
2: begin? So the first thing that we want to make sure we accomplish when we are talking with a family is to make sure they understand the process of interviewing with our show. One thing that we hear a lot is that people will interview with various media outlets. They do the one interview, they are finished, and then the piece is released. They are sometimes surprised about which clips are selected. So what we start with when we begin the interview process is to explain to the family, first things first, this is not live. Um, We want them to be as relaxed as possible. We also want them to understand they're going to have a chance to review what we have discussed before the podcast airs. So not only will we send them a transcript through email that they will go through, and if they feel like they regret anything they said or they decide they would not like part of that aired, they go ahead and strike from the record anything they're uncomfortable with. And that information being taken from the record means it will not be used once clips are being selected for the final product. They also will receive a copy of the final script before it is recorded by Laura. They can go through, they see what's being presented. Does it fall in line with what they are hoping will be conveyed about their story? Are there any inaccuracies. The reason why we take this very seriously is because this isn't an interview about your bakery opening or the state fair that's going to be starting soon. This centers around probably the most traumatic series of events in a person's life. Um, So we want to make sure that primarily we don't do any more harm than already has been done to the family.
0: One thing that listeners have often mentioned to me, especially in emails and in comments, is that they really enjoy all the personal details and background that we include that don't necessarily relate to the crime or the traumatic experience itself. How did that become part of your interview process?
2: I think this question really gets at why you and I are a good combination, I think the primary motivation you have in your work is getting to the bottom of a mystery. And my primary motivation in my work is listening to people. I find people fascinating. I find um, their experiences so interesting. I love hearing about how different families do different things. I used to love when I was a kid going over to other people's houses in my class. Um, everyone always did things so differently, different roles, uh, different ways of communicating. I have always been most interested in that. So although I am interested in the idea of resolving a problem and helping a family resolve a case, I am very interested in their family, their family structure, who their loved one was, what they were like, what the loss of that person has done to the family as a family system.
0: Well, and I think that one of the things that we were most concerned about when we began looking at cases that had little or no coverage was how do we get people to share these stories? As a licensed professional counselor, what are your standards in terms of the ethics of your profession? of how interviews should be conducted, the do's and don'ts.
2: So this involves a few different priorities for me. One of the first ones is preparation with a family member that's interviewing with us in terms of what to expect. Because you are opening an area in their life that is very traumatic, they should be able to understand how long it's going to last, what are the parameters. There's a safety in creating a container around the interview. In a therapeutic environment, it is important to create a container. That's obviously a metaphor, but it can guide people in terms of how much they feel safe opening up and talking about, what they'd like to hold back, because they don't feel that this is going to be a safe environment, because they're not going to have enough time, it helps them prepare to participate in a conversation that is not going to ultimately hurt them when it's over. The second part of that is that I think very carefully about what types of questions I'm going to ask. I'm very careful not to trigger a person that I'm speaking with by using graphic language or bringing images into their head that they have coped with for years and tried to get away from. These are things that continue to traumatize them over and over. I'm not interested in bringing that up during an interview.
0: So I know those are your parameters during the interview, but I know you also have some set for after the interview
2: as well. Can you talk about that? So one of the things that can be very important for families is to understand as their story is being composed by you, Laura, they are aware that they have some control over where it's going to end up. I sometimes have people reach out to me after the interview and text me and say, you know, on second thought, I was concerned about bringing this up. I think it might cause problems in the family. At that point, I direct them to you, Laura. Laura is the one who is crafting the narrative, selecting the clips. They need to be very certain that what they're concerned about is not going to end up in the episode. And because she is the last call on that, the family members speaking to Laura really sets them at ease much more so than I could do. So I pretty much am like the conduit (laughs) to get them to Laura so that they can have those assurances. So the last thing I wanted to talk about
0: was your overall approach to the show what you laid out to me before we even started, that if we're going to do this and if I'm going to do this with you, this is how I want it done. So I'd like to talk to you a little more about why that's so important to you, not just in terms of our show, but when I talked to you about doing true crime in the first place. Like, why was that how you wanted to do it if we were going to even approach true crime? Yeah.
2: So at the heart of my understanding of our participation in the show is a recognition that just because we have microphones and you have writing skills and I have therapeutic skills doesn't mean that we have more wisdom than the families that we're working with. The complexity of that setup is something that we think about a lot. We are providing a place where families can tell their stories But, once this podcast airs, advertisements are played on the podcast, money is generated, and it comes to us. So at that point, we have to decide what to do about that money. So we have been very intentional about what we do with that money when it does come back to us, in terms of how that money can benefit the families, how the money can be channeled into therapy funds. For people who have worked with us, billboard funds to raise awareness in their cases, donations to nonprofits that directly help these families get the resources they need to continue the work. So when you came to me with these
0: ideas and said, we need to have a therapy fund, we should begin a billboard fund. We did. And our listeners were there to support it. So I think that just became a core part of our show. And I'm glad it's remained that way for six years. We hope you enjoyed this look behind the scenes of the fall line. We tend to hang in the background and let the cases stay at the forefront, but we are happy to share about the show and we are so grateful for the thoughtful and engaged audience that we have. We will be back in November with a full season on Tennessee doe cases, our most complex unidentified persons coverage ever. And between now and then, the feed will feature bonus content in the meantime, including our coverage of Derek Evans' case. If you know of a case that should be covered on The Fall Line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independent show, and we appreciate listener support. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really does help. And please take a moment to rate and review our show in your podcast app of choice. If you're interested in pre-ordering my book, Lay Them to Rest, it's out really soon, this October 17th. Pre-ordering the book is a big factor in its success, so I appreciate it. If you pre-order the book, there are opportunities to gain access to exclusive bonus material, like a full-length podcast episode covering a cold case that is briefly touched on in the book, and a book release Zoom hangout with special guest Josh Hallmark. We'll be discussing our experiences working on dough cases. You can find details on getting your bonuses by following the link in the show notes. If you already pre ordered, no problem. You are eligible to follow the link to Hachette's website in our show notes. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon or Apple Premium. 100% of our Patreon and Apple Premium earnings go toward the Family Therapy Fund which is supporting therapy for families who have appeared on the show. On Patreon, you get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. If you prefer Apple Premium, you can subscribe there as well. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional assistance by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrow. Interviews by Brooke Hartgrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka.